While it may be cold outside, things are getting toasty warm at Global Voice Broadcasting. Heat up your winter nights with the hottest topics, the hottest celebrities, and today's best music. It's why Global Voice Broadcasting is becoming your 24-7 home for the music and talk you want right now. Discover your favorite shows and music anytime at globalvoicebroadcasting.com. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin. A spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and we are going to dive right into conversation today as I cannot wait to chat with today's guest. In a world that makes us feel like we aren't enough, Don Sarah helps to rewrite the stories we're told about sex, relationships, and self-acceptance. She's a sexual empowerment coach, sex educator, creator of this rad summit you're going to hear about later, and co-host of the very fun and sexy podcast, Sex Gets Real which always makes me want to hang out with her and her co-host, Don. And I figure this might be the next best thing. Thanks for being here, Don. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I'm such a fan of you. I have a bit of a, like, sex geek crush because I always, <laughs> I see your, you know, in social media engagement and the things that you're outspoken about and your show. And I just, I love everything you're doing. And it just means a lot to me. I feel like I know you, but we haven't gotten to hang out yet. So this is, this is super, super fun. Um, I know you're really open about the fact that you were sex positive from the beginning. You were raised in a very sex positive atmosphere, which unfortunately is somewhat of an anomaly. I wondered if you could shed some light on that. What is it like? And, you know, how did that happen? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. I was definitely raised in a house where we talked about sex a lot, but we didn't necessarily talk about like healthy relationships or those kinds of things. So uh, it's interesting how that like kind of plays out as I get older in my relationships. But, you know, I was definitely raised in a house where um, my mom, at least my dad was kind of an (laughs) unwilling participant, but um, my mom was just like very sexually liberated. You know, she was a hippie in the 70s and very open about her sexuality and all of the sexual adventures that she went on in the 70s. And so growing up, like, I can remember having a book about where babies came from pretty much from before I could read. And I distinctly remember the pictures of like the mommy and the daddy getting in the bed and hugging really close. And my mom liked that I was asking her questions about that. And she had birthing books that showed pictures of women giving birth. And I remember looking at those when I was a really, really young little girl. And, you know, I mean, I think around the time I was like, God, I don't know, like 10 or 11, I heard a story of my mom having a threesome. So... (laughs) You know, like I was just the the friend that all my friends had in like elementary and middle school and into high school who kind of knew a lot because I just heard a lot of stories. And so, you know, while I kind of had that teenage shame around like touching my own body and masturbating and feeling like I know this is something I shouldn't be doing where people can catch me, like overall, I was 
the most comfortable of all of my friends of just being able to really talk about sex and ask questions and buy condoms and because it was just kind of my normal growing up. That's amazing. So you didn't have to like pretend you were working. That's what I used to do. I used to pretend I was working on a school project about sex education when I would buy condoms. <laughs> like I'd buy <laughs> poster board and sticky tape and all these things. <laughs> And be like, and I thought I was the only person in my entire city having sex. Like, that's how little anybody around me was talking about it. So I just think that is amazing. Did it affect your body image? Because I've always felt like, for me and for many people I know, the pressure to have stigma and shame around our sexuality really fuels that sort of disconnect that we have that later goes into just really disliking our bodies. Did you feel like you had more positive body image as well? No, actually, I had kind of the opposite of what I was just talking about when it came to sex, which created this really interesting disconnect for me that I'm still actually really trying to heal and learn from and that, you know, sex is something I could just talk about with anybody. And that was really easy for me. But I grew up in a household where there was a lot of focus on the fact that I was a little bit bigger or I was a little bit taller. I was a little bit stronger than most of the girls my age. And you know, I developed a lot sooner. Um, I was like the biggest girl on the softball team and the strongest girl. And, you know, I can remember being, I don't know, like in the sixth grade and going to get some back to school clothes. And I had taken some clothes into the changing room and I told my mom these aren't big enough I need a size 10 and I remember hearing my dad in the store screaming you know like Jesus Christ she's double digits she's fat already and so that really like all through middle school and high school, I really felt like as kind of like the fat one of my friends. And actually looking back, I really wasn't fat. Like I'm definitely fat now, but back then I was probably like a size 10 or a size 12. But compared to my friends who were like size zero and size two, especially because I grew up in Southern California, like I always kind of felt like the fat sidekick. And I felt like I wasn't allowed to be the one that boys wanted. And I wasn't allowed to be the one that got the dates. You know, I was the one that was the really good friend who could talk about sex with all the boys. And so that just created this really like deep internalized kind of fat phobia and shame. I spent my entire childhood on diets. I mean, I can remember being eight and nine years old, you know, and, and, kind of my parents watching what I was eating and having a Christy Brinkley diet book when I was in middle school and Weight Watchers and and all of that stuff. And, you know, so then growing up, I really into my 20s and even my early 30s started realizing, like, I really have felt like I didn't deserve to be wanted and I didn't deserve to be in healthy relationships because who could want me? I'm fat. And so, yeah, it was this really interesting, I mean, and just like polarizing disconnect between yay let's talk about all the sex things by the way I'm super ashamed and hate my body and I don't feel like you deserve to touch me kind of stuff wow wow it sounds very complex and I'm sure perplexing to you then and obviously you've come such a long way since then what were some of the key things that helped heal that relationship with your body yeah I have to say it's ongoing but where I am today 
is a vastly different place than I was like in my early 20s and and mid 20s. I mean, I know a lot of people who are in all different kinds of bodies can really relate to this, but I think it's a pretty universal thing for most people who are fat of just spending so much of my time believing that if I could just be skinny, everything would be okay. Mm -hmm. If I could just be skinny, then I would be my best self and I would be worthy of the relationships I dreamed of for myself. And I'd be worthy of the success and I'd finally be, you know, sexy. And it was this, you know, I spent so much of my life living in a future that I so desperately wanted and not at all appreciating where I was. Mm. And what started really shifting that for me (laughs) was um, I was in this relationship for seven years with somebody who I'm still very close with and we love each other very much. But, um, you know, towards the end of the relationship, it was virtually sexless and we had just really kind of become companions. And I started realizing, you know, like I'm, at the time, I think I was like 32. And I just remember thinking like, I'm 32. And I'm in a sexless relationship that has zero desire. And I really want to have sex. Like, and I I started realizing I was terrified of ending my relationship, because I didn't believe anybody could possibly want to have sex with me. Mm. And so I, I kind of reached this breaking point of I would rather realize nobody wants to have sex with me and say I tried than to stay in this relationship and always wonder. And so we had lots of other issues going on, but we ended the relationship um, fairly amicably. And 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 I immediately started putting myself out on dating apps and guys were replying to my profile and at first my profile was you know kind of trying to like hide the fact that I was fat and then I and then I met up with somebody and realized well at some point they're all going to see me so I should just say in my profile I'm fat and you know that didn't that didn't scare people away like guys really wanting to hook up with me and the first time I had sex now I should say I was in lesbian and trans relationships for 13 years so when I ended that seven year relationship the first time I had sex with a man was the first time I had had sex with a man in like 14 years so it's like I was terrified of being rejected terrified of you know him seeing my fat body and I was with a man oh crap I don't know how to work these parts um But I remember thinking the second he took my clothes off, he was going to want to run out the door in horror. And he didn't. Mm. And that was the turning point for me of, well, he stayed. And so maybe other people will stay. And I ended up taking this lover for about three months who took me to places I didn't know existed in the human experience. Like sex that I honestly just I mean, even reading all those romance novels growing up, I couldn't have possibly imagined that <laughs> sex would be like this. Like and that stuff? was the point where I really was like, I can have the best sex that the universe has ever known and be in a fat body. So maybe some of the stuff I've been telling myself isn't true. And I started looking for role models. And I kind of stumbled across some articles by the militant baker, Jess Baker, I discovered Virgie Tovar, Tess Holliday, and they were all saying the same thing, which is go on a media diet, like stop 
filling your life with magazines full of skinny people and start really surrounding yourself with images of people who look like you just so you can kind of see yeah, there's people like you out there. And so I really started doing that. And I started wearing dresses. And I just kind of kept taking these small little steps. And then, you know, there was just a point where I started really letting go of a lot of that internalized fat phobia, and really starting to realize, like, I can actually have all the things I want without having to change what I look like at all unless I want to it's not because I have to I can change if I want to but I don't have to change and I can still have all these things I thought weren't accessible to me you know in a fat body and it was just this like slow little trickling effect that really started to add up to something huge Mm, and then so important oh sorry go ahead it's so important to know that you went step by step, too, because I think it's such an overwhelming problem uh, and lifelong for so many of us. Like it took me, you know, decades to to start accepting my body. And I think it's overwhelming when you start. And I love that you put yourself out there and were vulnerable and over time, you know, experienced a difference. Yeah, that was, you know, I... I'll say, like, sometimes I like to call myself an emotional masochist just because uh, I have a tendency of, you know, emotionally kind of seeing a really terrifying cliff where a lot of people would actually kind of stop and be be like, you know, I could really get hurt. And I have a tendency to just kind of like fling myself off of that. And so I, I one thing I'm good at is being really vulnerable. And I think that that really worked in my favor in that moment of just like, I'm just going to do this really, really terrifying thing. And I might get super hurt, but I can't stay stuck because that's worse to me to just like be standing on that ledge and always wondering. And I didn't, I didn't want that for myself. So yeah. And then just like you said, just kind of those like little teeny shifts and those little teeny steps that just started adding up to something really big over time, I think was so important, so important because, you know, it's, I think a lot of people just think there's like this magic like switch that you flip and all of a sudden you love your body and all of a sudden you totally accept, you know, what you look like and and there's like almost a magic pill effect and it's not. It's like lots of little choices and and coming up against lots of little moments of resistance and fear and just one by one kind of, you know, navigating around them and being curious and then all of a sudden you look back and you realize, holy crap, I have a whole new attitude. I have a whole new relationship with my body. And and it feels so much, it feels so liberating. Yeah. And um, it, there's so much more space in my thoughts now that I don't spend 90% of my time telling myself all the things that aren't good enough. I love it. That is so important for people to hear, I think, too, because there's the flipping the switch thing that people think that they have to find the secret answer. But then also, I think there's this belief that it's just going to keep going. Like, I went through a really severe eating disorder. And people often say to me, and just assuming, oh, you're so you always struggle with this, like, this is something that'll never go away. And it's just part of it and life for you now. And this is what your existence is going to be. And I refused that. And even when I refused it, it still took me quite a long time to take all those steps and do all that work. And then looking back, as you said, and going, whoa, I actually didn't judge myself today. I didn't have a horrifying thought about my body. And so it's so important for people to see that hope that you provide. I think the example you provide is 
is really, really huge. Can I ask you about the word fat? Because I I noticed that <laughs> when I was preparing for this, and I'm all for fat acceptance, and I know that you advocate for that, and I think it's so important, but I noticed that when I was trying to figure out, you know, how to talk about all this, I... I don't. I steer clear of using the word not just fat, but fat, skinny, anything mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. like a, a body type. And I think that's partly because of the efforts I was putting into, you know, acceptance and not seeing people's sizes and whatnot. And maybe because fat has a negative connotation. I'm not. I'm still trying to figure that out in my head why <laughs> I have that. But I know that it seems, you know, fat acceptance. People take a lot of pride in. Mm-hmm. I am fat and. And I, I, even there, I had to like stutter a little bit. Is, <laughs> is that something that you find to be empowering to really take that title and turn it into something that you feel great about? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm really glad you brought this up because if we had talked six months ago, I would still be stuttering over that word too. Uh, you know, I, the word fat. So, you know, when we really step back, skinny and fat are adjectives and they, they're descriptors. But unfortunately, the way that, that we use them is as value statements. So, um, you know, if you're skinny, you're valuable in a lot of ways in our society and people strive to be skinnier and to be and you know, all the magazines talk about how to be thin and how to lose weight. And so the way we use the words is that skinny tends to, um, depending on how it's used, but just kind of generally speaking, you know, a lot of times skinny is used as, or thin is used to say this person has achieved something or is more valuable than somebody who's not thin or who's not skinny. Whereas fat tends to be in our society, the worst thing you can possibly be. And it's seen as, there's all like all of these automatic moral judgments placed on someone when you say fat. You know, it's the assumption is that you're lazy, that you're gross, that you're smelly, that you're, you know, you can take it in lots of different directions, that you you go to Walmart and you're on welfare. And it's just like all of these like really harsh judgments are placed on people when they're labeled fat. And for me, for the longest time, I didn't want to be called fat because I felt like well, I'm not lazy. I'm not gross. I'm quite clean. I actually think that I'm fairly pretty. And you're gorgeous, I didn't feel by the like, way. <laughs> I didn't feel like all of the things that people mean when they say fat apply to me. So I, of course, don't want to be fat. You know, like I'm plus size or I'm curvy or, you know, you can take that lots of different places. And then I just really started realizing like the people who are really, really making waves in the world around loving your body exactly as it is. And like you, you have value no matter what kind of body you're in, whether you're able-bodied or disabled or fat or thin or tall or short. You know, and the people who were really making a stand and giving me permission were all calling themselves fat unapologetically. And so I really had to start kind of thinking, like, if I really admire these people and the work that they do and the way they're pushing back against the way we kind of, you know, define 
different people as being more valuable than others, then maybe I really need to kind of step back and reconsider my relationship with that word. And at some point, fat just started being an adjective again. You know, and I think it was because I gave myself permission to kind of dig around and roll in that discomfort and then decide, no, I can actually reclaim this. And if I say that I'm successful and I have great sex and I have, you know, amazing relationships and friendships and my family values me and I do work that sets my soul on fire and I'm fat, then I think that helps to just demonstrate to the people who hear me talk that fat doesn't equate to all of these things that we're told fat can mean valuable, desirable, sexy, all those kinds of things. And healthy um, too. I think that's another and healthy. big one is mm-hmm. that people think that if you're fat, you're automatically unhealthy, whereas our size has so little to do with our actual physical health. Not that we should judge people by their health either, you know, but I think right. that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Lauren Marie Fleming is a part of the summit that we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, and one of the things she she talks about is how she wants to replace the word healthy with thriving. Mm. And I really love that reframe because, you know, we use healthy also as a judgment. So is the food you're eating healthy or not? And now we're giving food value um, that may or may not be the right kind of value for your body. And it's become this really loaded term. you know, where we value healthy people over unhealthy people, but unhealthy can mean a lot of different things. Are we talking about people with disabilities? Are we talking about people who maybe have a chronic disorder? Are we talking about, you know, disease or illness? So it becomes this really hard thing to pin down that people just kind of say. So I love that she invites thriving, you know, like you can be fat and thriving. You can be disabled and thriving. You can be um, you can be thin and rich and, you know, conventionally gorgeous and not thriving. So, you know, I, I just kind of like that reframe because I think it, it invites a little bit more space. But um, you're so right. You know, people assume that fat means unhealthy and inactive and not caring about what you're putting in your body. And generally fat people are the hardest working people and the people who are most aware of what they're putting in their body of of anybody because they know their value is determined by what they put in their mouth. That is so well said and such a good point. I worked as a nutrition therapist for almost 10 years and I can attest to that. It's amazing to me and actually I saw a lot more um, I guess unhealthy dietary behaviors, not just dietary behaviors but um, you know, nutritional problems and deficiencies and things like that and people who were much smaller in size and who were also getting praised for their, you know, all of this, which wasn't which wasn't something that made them thrive. And so I think that's important. It's it's amazing. People think that overweight people are fat people. I'm still working on using that word. <laughs> but fat people, you know, I for the most part, they are not the ones who are, you know, just sitting around eating potato chips. A lot of them eat eat less than the thinner people, which is something that I think very few people believe, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
it's it's I, I think it's a topic that I just want more and more people to be curious about. Like, you know, we have these really deeply held beliefs that, you know, eating carbs or eating gluten or eating all these kinds of things are so bad. And we have these really religious, um, rigid feelings around it. And a lot of it is because we've been all raised in a system that tells us if we aren't constantly monitoring ourselves, if we aren't constantly policing ourselves, if we aren't constantly trying to be perfect or to be better, then we're worthless. Mm. Yes. And so like, I love just the fact that we even have these conversations, I think gives people permission to just maybe have a little bit of space, a little bit of permission to think a little bit differently. Uh, And, and and see where that where that goes. You know, for me, it's been beautifully liberating. I love it. Absolutely. I think you're inspiring so many people more than you could ever even, you know, fathom. And every important story, every outspoken advocate, I'm a fan of, of Lori's too. And I think you guys are really, really making a an impact. And I love that idea. You know, be curious. Just think more. Just open your mind and, and challenge these thoughts. I would love to switch gears quite a bit, actually, to something that I heard you. <laughs> this is like not a smooth transition. But you, in a recent interview I listened to, it was so powerful because you shared about going through sexual assault both as a teen and again more recently and you said something that has popped up in my head frequently since and that was that you said that your rapes were more subtle than what people consider as rape and Mm -hmm. I've been carrying that with me because I feel like on a mass level so many people think if they're whatever happened to them whatever kind of sexual assault happened to them they don't think it is quote intense enough or violent enough or whatever. Could you speak to what that means and why it's important to to really consider, you know, challenging those beliefs? Yeah, that's a that's a, a really juicy question. <laughs> um, so there's so much to say there that that's wonderful. And thank you for asking it, because it's it's, I think, an important question. So. One of the things that I just want to start the conversation with is people get to decide how they feel about what's happened to them. And I recently saw an article that everyone was circulating all about um, how hard it is to be a woman who, you know, has sex in modern day world. And um, I can't remember the the title or where it was published. I just remember the image uh, that was with it, which was a, a woman with her legs spread in a train going from the man's body to hers. Um, and her whole article really outlined behavior that pretty much everybody who read the article really felt like was sexual assault and repeated rapes. And she said throughout the article, I don't feel like I was violated. I just feel like this isn't the kind of sex I want to be having. And, you know, people were trying to tell her, you were raped, you were raped, you were raped. And, you know, perhaps she was, but she gets to decide if she feels like a victim or not. So I just kind of want to start the conversation with that. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of us have these really, really kind of weird gray spaces because we really live in a world where talking about sex isn't something that any of us are really raised knowing how to do. Um, We're raised in a world where, you know, speaking just kind of like in a very hetero way, um, in a very binary way, you know, boys are raised 
to um, believe that a big part of their value and their masculinity comes from how much sex they can have and how much sex they can take. And, you know, girls are taught that they shouldn't give sex away unless, you know, love is part of the equation and that they need to guard themselves against boys. And so we really have these dysfunctional conversations, which means sometimes we end up in sexual (laughs) settings where Shit gets really. Can I curse? Oh yeah, please go ahead. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> please, um, please. Stuff gets <laughs> good. So where stuff gets really confusing really quickly, and you know, I think one of the one of the hardest things when it comes to rape and sexual assault is most of the conversations that we have are around the most violent versions of those acts. The kind that you see on SVU, you know, Law and Order SVU, tend to be really, really violent and um, often committed by strangers. And not to say that those things don't happen, because they do, but the vast majority of, of sexual abuse, sexual assault, and rape usually happens between two people who are either acquaintances or friends or know each other. And often you don't really know what's just happened. You know you didn't want it. And you know you you never really said yes, or maybe you said yes and then you changed your mind. But because we carry all of this guilt around having sex at all, oftentimes then we just end up feeling really yucky and really unsure of what happened. And it's because we don't really have a lot of these conversations around, well, what is it if someone didn't put a knife to my throat or gun to my head? And if I wasn't kicking and screaming while someone was holding me down and this really violent thing happened, what if it was really quiet? And that's exactly what happened to me. And I honestly, you know, the the two rapes that I had that were a lot more recent, I didn't even really know what to call it when it happened. And then I was talking to a therapist and when she said, that's rape we're talking about rape i simultaneously felt like oh god i don't want that to be true and that kind of explains why i've been feeling so horrible Mm. and and that was when i just really realized we need to be having more of these conversations about consent and about just how damaging it is to be coerced or manipulated. And those are very, those are very quiet, um, kind of unsuspecting behaviors that I think a lot of people don't really think about as being sexually manipulative or as leading to assault or rape. And I think we need to do a better job of having these conversations and really realizing that, you know, you're allowed to change your mind and you deserve to be respected when you do. And if you say no and somebody keeps trying to talk you out of your no, no matter how nice they're being, 
if they ultimately end up taking something from you that you really didn't want to do, then that's not okay. That's what rape looks like. And, you know, we, we tend to think of rape as somebody jumping out from behind bushes and pushing you down or sneaking in your bedroom window or slipping a roofie into your drink. But it can be a lot more, um, it can be a lot different than that. And, you know, one of the reasons I, I want to talk about this is because I just want people to know that there are, are resources available. You don't have to be alone. You know, I think that's one of the hardest things about like sexual assault and rape is, you know, even now, even though I've talked about it on many shows and written about it and, you know, talked to my therapists and all kinds of stuff and just really come to terms with it. And it's really an important part of my story. You know, there's still this shame that comes up, you know, uh, around it. And I really want to honor that because I want people to know they aren't alone. If, even if it happened years ago, or even if it was somebody who you trusted or who you love that used and maybe a little ashamed or guilty, like that's okay. That's, that's normal and you're not alone. And there are lots of people out there who can, who can empathize and, and support you in that. Absolutely. I imagine there could be the potential, everyone's different as as you mentioned, but for more shame when you might feel even more guilty that it was somebody that you care about or somebody that you know, and God, why didn't I catch the signs or why yep. did I let him or her push me mm-hmm. to this point where, yep. you know, which is, again, the wrong emphasis, but you don't get healing if you don't stake claim to this happened to me and I felt violated. And um, was that the beginning of healing for you when you were with that therapist and you realized that you'd been raped? Did you then begin to be able to heal? You know, (laughs) what actually started the healing for me was, and I I don't necessarily recommend this to anybody, but (laughs) um, what really started the healing for me was I... I was raped in in December a couple of years ago and was started working with a therapist around just really feeling yucky about this thing that had happened and then really realizing this person had I mean they spent about an hour just slowly wearing me down until instead of saying no I was just silent and then he just did it Mm -hmm. and And so I was kind of working with my therapist around that. And then I met somebody that I was in a relationship with. And, you know, there were red flags. There were all of these little things that, you know, looking back, you can see and say, you know, maybe this person wasn't that as trustworthy as I thought. But in the moment, especially when you're totally infatuated with somebody and you're having all of these really rich discussions and like every once in a while, a little thing comes up and you're like, this doesn't feel quite right, but there's a thousand other things that do. And so you just kind of keep going along. And three months into this relationship, you know, I found myself, you know, in a situation we had had sex before and everything. And this one night he just, he, he did something that he knew I was absolutely, absolutely 
not okay with because mm-hmm. we had talked about it multiple times. And, you know, I never have sex without a condom ever, ever, ever non-negotiable. And we had talked about that and he had pushed me on it, which was one of the red flags. And I kept saying, I'm not negotiating. I'm not going to talk about this with you. Like if you keep bringing it up, then we're just not going to have sex anymore. And he kept going, okay, okay, okay. I just wanted to see if I framed it this way. And one night he just kind of like said, let me just try this. And I said, no, I'm not okay with that. And he ended up just pushing himself inside without a condom and having sex with me. And I completely checked out. You know, I was not talking. I was not moving. Nothing. And then afterwards, you know, he was like, I feel like an asshole. And it was just it was awful. And I went to tell my therapist that and she got really angry and blamed me. Oh, my God. And that hit my anger fuse. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Wow. That's that was the moment when I was like, nope, taking a stand like absolutely not you cannot sit there and say this is my fault you absolutely cannot do that and I started yelling and I got really angry and it was the first time I had ever tapped into my anger around any of this and that was important it was so important that I found my anger because that's really when I started realizing like this is not okay And I did the best that I could in that moment. And these people really did not. And, you know, my therapist ended up apologizing and just being really hurt about it. But we ended our relationship at that point. And that pushed me into activist mode. That anger propelled me into, I need to start finding communities and speaking up. And I need to start lending support to people who have no idea what's just happened to them and they feel utterly alone. And I need to start talking about this. And I started joining all kinds of groups talking about like consent and and people who were religious around consent and finding community of other people who had been through what I had been through and building each other up. And that was really the moment that made me realize, like, this is work I want to do. I want to work around trauma. I want to work around PTSD. I want to work around, like, sexual assault. And, you know, it breaks you in ways you don't have words for. And it impacts all of the rest of your relationships. Like I still have some trust issues, even with my current partner, who's the most beautiful human being that's ever existed on the face of the planet, you know, and it's because trauma really fundamentally changes you. And I think that's another thing that like, I really want people to know. I've read so many studies at this point and just done so much work around trauma and PTSD and, there's a wonderful book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk that I recommend to anybody who's struggling with trauma. But trauma literally physiologically changes your brain. You're not the same person after a trauma that you were before. And I think a lot of pain happens when you try to make yourself be the person you were before. Mm. And you have to find a way to recognize like, no, I'm someone new. And this person is just as lovable and just as worthy. But this person is different. And so how can I create a world where I navigate this this new 
version of me and you know learning how to have permission and patience with yourself is so important but I experienced a lot of pain and trying to be the person I was before and what really liberated me and helped me to heal in a big way was realizing no this did fundamentally change me mm-hmm. and not for not for better or worse it just changed me and I get to now you know here comes the word again I get to be really curious about who I am now and what my needs are and how I get to live life in in this new version of me. And that really helped me do a lot of healing too. Beautiful. I, it's such a superhero story. It's like Jessica Jones. It's like a, I feel like I just read a really amazing, empowering comic book, not to belittle, I mean, comics, but real life superhero, because it's amazing what I'm hearing you say too is you get to this point and you were at this crossroads and got to decide you know this is who I am now and I've changed and even though I'm still going to be dealing with this and it's changed me I can decide what I'm going to do with who I am now and you do so much I mean so much and I'm so blown away by it you you have your coaching practice so do you primarily work with people who are going through uh, similar issues trauma and that kind of thing or is it sex coaching in general I um I have a couple of clients who have a history of trauma that I work with. My clients are actually primarily not in the trauma spectrum. And sorry if you can hear my cat sneezing. But, <laughs> That's what that um, was. <laughs> That's cute now. I like um, it. <laughs> yeah. Um it's a space that I really want to move into in a big way. Um, I've got some big plans over the next couple of years. Uh, I want to put on a summit that's all around trauma. And I am looking at getting a certificate in working with people who have trauma. Um, I'm also really interested in um, somatic work because one of the big things that happens with trauma is you become really divorced from your body because your body becomes a really painful place to be and so I've done a lot of body-based work and that's been tremendous for um, you know dealing with my own trauma and healing process and so right now most of my clients are are non-trauma based I have a couple but most of them are are just folks who are kind of stuck in the bedroom or or aren't really sure how to talk to their spouse around sex and and you know or they've never had an orgasm or they have a lot of shame around their sexuality and that kind of stuff but trauma is a really big place where I see myself moving over the next couple of years because the work is just so needed and it's so beautiful and um, I'm just really excited about about where that's going to lead me that's so exciting I really see you doing that and you're obviously great at creating communities and you have this wonderful summit that's just about to start so before I let you go please tell me I signed up I'm so excited tell us about the explore more summit yes oh my god I'm so excited so I I've had this vision for about two years of wanting to get like the best sex and relationship experts in the world together and have these really intimate conversations with them because 
all of these people who have inspired me in some way around my own sexuality or my relationship with my body or, you know, in the types of communication and intimacies that I have, I wanted to find a way to share these people and their messages with the world. Because I was like, I don't want to be the only one that knows these these amazing people. <laughs> and of course, I'm not because they're all huge. But, you know, I wanted to do it like in my Dawn way. And uh, but I was just like, scared of what if I start asking all these people if they'll be part of my event and they all say no you know it's the fear (laughs) of rejection and over the summer uh, Tristan Terramino is my business coach and over the summer I was talking to Tristan about it and she was like "Um, no we're doing this (laughs) so uh, I I started actually like really okay I'm going to make this happen and I started reaching out to people and I kept getting yes after yes after yes after yes and at some point I was like oh crap I really have to do this thing everybody (laughs) said yes and so I have 30 one hour interviews they're video interviews so you'll be able to see us and they're really intimate and they're really deep rich conversations about what these people do best. And it's a 10 day summit. So there's three talks per day. The talks will be up for 24 hours. So each day you'll have 24 hours to watch the three talks. Everything is free. um, If you can fit all 30 in and I hope you can. And you know, the thing that's just really is I'm so like, I'm so excited about this is I've probably watched all of the talks five or six times at this point, you know, from editing (laughs) the videos to like pulling out quotes for social media and, you know, promotional materials and stuff. And every single time I watch these talks, I find something new that just like lights me up and hits me deep. And they're just they're so powerful. They're so powerful. So yeah, explore more summit. It starts on January 28th and it runs for 10 days and it's free. And I've made this amazing workbook so that every day people will get a couple more pages in the workbook. And it's full of all these like prompts and exercises so that people can like really go deep with all of the stuff they're learning. And oh my God, I'm so excited. (laughs) Awesome. It's so contagious. I feel your excitement. And I, the site is amazing. It's, is it exploremoresummit.com? Uh-huh. Yep. It's exploremoresummit.com. And we have a thriving Facebook community. I think we're up to like 250 people now. And um, we're having these really like vulnerable, fun, personal discussions in the group to kind of like prime everybody for the actual summit. So like people are answering, what does jealousy feel like in your body? And, you know, what are three things that you most admire about yourself as a lover? And we're having just like all these really fun conversations. And so by the time the summit hits, people are going to just be like all in. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, a big slumber party online. I'm super stoked. Yes. It's going to be way fun. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Don. I'm wishing you the best with all of this, the summit and everything else. And please let me know if I can support you more in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. I've been, I've, uh, I have to like return the geeking out and just say, I so admire you and I love Girl Boner. And I'm so thrilled that I finally got to talk to you and be on your show because that's definitely been a dream of mine. And I really super appreciate the support. Oh, thank you, Don. You take care. We'll be in touch. Okay. Bye. 
Mutual Admiration Society. I love her. Isn't she fantastic? If you guys aren't familiar, or if you are, just go back to her website and check out all her awesomeness. It's dawnsera.com. It's dawn, D-A-W-N-S-E-R-R-A.com. You can also follow her on Twitter at dawn underscore Sarah, S-E-R-R-A. Now it's time for a bit of Q&A with my partner in the sublime, Dr. Megan Fleming. This week's question comes from Joni, who wrote this. Hi, Dr. Megan. I need your help. Long story short is that I'm 30 years old and have never been able to orgasm. Whenever I'm fooling around solo, which isn't very often, or with my boyfriend of over 10 years, I get to the point where things are starting to feel good and then... Bam. I feel an intense pain slash hypersensitivity in the clit area, and I have to stop. When I'm initially touching and rubbing in that area, things are starting to feel nice and start building, which I always hope is a good sign, but then it progresses like a light switch. It suddenly turns into a feeling of being very sensitive to the point of feeling acutely painful. As soon as this happens, I instantly need to pull away and can't be touched there. Uh, anymore as it, quote, hurts so bad and any good I was feeling is gone. I just want to be done. While I haven't mentioned it to my doctor yet, I don't think it is a medical issue as I don't have any pain other times, but I guess since I'm not a doctor, I can't really make that diagnosis. I've read that making sure to be fully aroused with proper lubrication is important, and I'm trying to work through any mental blocks that might be affecting me. I have a bit of self-conscious issue, but I'm trying to fix it. Otherwise, I'm at a loss as to why this happens to me. I would really appreciate any insight you could give me on this. Thanks, August and Dr. Megan. Joni, here is what Dr. Megan had to say. Well, um, again, as always, a great question. And I guess I would start by saying, it's, although, and I'll get into it, why I think that, uh, that there are a lot of psychological factors, it's interesting that, you know, she didn't bring it to her doctor. And I think that it's so important that... Um, we allow ourselves that opportunity, that vulnerability to capitalize on their expertise um, because it, it's, you know, one of the things when I hear sort of this kind of presentation, um, my mind thinks typically one of two things. Either one, she's actually had the orgasm and yet she doesn't feel the pleasure of it, but this is uh, the sensitivity that's very common for a number of women, like post-orgasm, it's like they can't be touched, like there's that hypersensitivity. Um, and or if it's not that, then it might be sort of in sense that um, when you're aroused, it's vasocongestion, it's blood flow, and it can really build up. And if all of a sudden you're aware or afraid of orgasming or spectatoring, you're sort of clenching and, and inhibiting that natural biological response. And in doing so, that level of buildup and pressure in of itself can be painful. So um, I really do think, A, certainly, first of all, bring it to the attention of your gynecologist, but that also potentially bring it to a specialist um, in painful sex. So, again, somebody who specializes in vulval vaginal uh, pain or pelvic floor dysfunction because it's really unclear to me whether it's you haven't yet connected with the pleasure that precedes that sort of tipping point of orgasm and that sensitivity that is very common after orgasm, not wanting to be touched, or whether it might be a vasocongestion issue. And I think that, um, you know, some practical tips is like, again, it's fascinating. You're in a relationship with 10 years, fabulous, but you've done rarely any individual solo work. So, you know, I love to quote Betty Dotson, we consider her 86 now, the mother of masturbation, um, the value of self-pleasuring, because it's like only then can you know how to 
communicate to your partner sort of your turn-ons and, and even to know uh, what turns you on. And so, you know, one of her favorite techniques for masturbation is what she calls a rock and roll orgasm. And by that, it's basically you're not only um, doing the clitoral stimulation, but you're engaging your PC muscles, call them those Kegel exercises, to um, in the rock and roll part is you're basically, on an inhale, I want you to rock your pelvis forward um, and clench or contract your PC muscles or basically Kegel. And on the exhale, I want you to release uh, your pelvic floor, exhale. And while you're doing that, the rolling of your pelvis with the inhalation and exhalation, because breathing is incredibly important, um, as well as the tightening and release of the PC muscles, that you're adding the additional clitoral stimulation. Um, and it, it, again, if it starts to feel too much or intense, then go with a little bit less direct stimulation um, and let that sort of subside. So if there's the vasocongestion, congestion, let, let the blood flow subside, let it become sort of pleasant. It's not sort of edging on that painful experience. Um, and then see if you can come back to it. I think it's really important to sort of, you know, explore the different ways that feel pleasurable to you. And another technique often is, um, you know, a stroke that can bring women to orgasm is if you're left-handed, think of a clock, right? Your belly is 6 o'clock and your anus is, is uh, midnight or 12. And so if you're left-handed, stroke diagonally 11 to 5. And if you're right-handed, stroke 1 to 7. And, and again, try that for like 10 minutes without expectation, without anticipation, without focusing on orgasm. Because I think the biggest... Um, sex organs are brain that, you know, if you're like, oh my God, it's not going to happen, like that inner dialogue is often so in your head, not sexy, you can inhibit your arousal like nobody's business. So there's two parts to your question. One is trying to understand the pain component, but the other is also feeling like you're not quite getting to the pleasure or the experience of orgasm. So I'm trying to help you think about both parts of that, um, things you can do to bring you to that tipping point to pleasurably have orgasm and release as well as when and if that pain piece doesn't uh, resolve itself to recognize, absolutely bring it to your doctor, your gynecologist, or seek out a specialized, uh, specialist um, for pelvic pain. And I would also add that the foundation of arousal is relaxation. And chances are, you've been 10 years with this partner, you barely explore on your own. I'm willing to bet you're more in your mind and your head than you are in your body. You're anticipating the pain or discomfort or your partner's potential disappointment or frustration, and chances are, I'd say, it's like a cartoon bubble above your head. There's nothing sexy or erotic about that. So take a deep breath, exhale, and, you know, in those moments, like, whew, let go of the history and just just try to be present in this moment to the touch, the sensation, without expectation anything's going to happen. And just try to let yourself go and notice that, again, the foundation of arousal is relaxation. And if you're you know, feeling the history, the weight of this, the pressure, everything about that, to me, in my experience, invites constricted energy and tension. And that, in and of itself, can explain sort of the block to your being able to let go and orgasm. 
Such wonderful advice. Thank you, Dr. Megan. I really hope that shed some light for you, Joni. I would just add that you're not alone. I know other women struggle with this. And actually, Dr. Megan and I, when we were talking about this um, before doing this actual episode, she did mention that this she sees this. And so I think that's a really important piece to know. And there's no reason to have any shame around it. I know that can be a really hard thing to, to go around and, and to heal from. Um, but I love what she said about both relaxation and working on it with yourself first and avoiding that area if need be. I'm such a fan of knowing your body first. And maybe that means meditating for, you know, a few minutes a day or before you have some sexy play with yourself every once in a while, even not to have necessarily an orgasm, but just the goal of comfort and exploration. Maybe it's just, you know, I use this great app called Simply Being that I seem to promote all the time. I have no affiliation. I just love it. And they have different options. You can meditate for five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever, to music with a nice voice that's prompting you, whatever. But get your body relaxed and then you know, play. She mentioned Kegel exercises. There's a lot of things you can do. But the nice thing about it when you're by yourself is you don't have to be thinking about, you know, is he feeling good or is he worried about my, my orgasm or is there pressure coming from him, are you wanting to have him have satisfaction of, of helping you experience that? So um, and Dr. Megan also mentioned, and I don't know if it was during this answer, but I know when we were talking about it, she said, you know, sometimes women have orgasms without realizing it. And I was one of those women for a long time. I didn't realize I was having clitoral orgasms. For You can learn more about that in my MRI um, episode. But it's uh, it's really interesting. And I think you know, I have a very sensitive clitoris, which I think is how you found Girl Boner was my my writing about that. So sometimes, even though there's all these articles, like focus on the clit, focus on the clit. Sometimes you need to focus at other places. We have a lot of pleasure and potential in other places. So taking it a day at a time. And then as Dr. Megan said, you know, check in with your doctor if need be. And find someone you're comfortable talking to or who can help you feel comfortable talking about it. You know, a gynecologist might, maybe that'll be easier, but they talk about this stuff. I mean, it might feel awkward to bring it up, but if you sense that it's not going well, then, you know, seek another opinion. I'm wishing you all the best. Please uh, feel free to reach out if you have additional questions. And all of you out there, if you have questions, send them my way. And speaking of Dr. Megan, she's offering this awesome uh, Rekindle Your Desire, Get Your Sexy Back program, which includes an audio guide and workbook. It's awesome. I've had a look at it. And even though I feel in a good place with my desire, I still feel like this workbook is something that I want to explore because it's a lot what Don was talking about, like getting to know yourself and having these curiosities and these conversations, whether it's privately or with a partner, or maybe even share some, you know, chit chat with a girlfriend or something. You can learn more about the program next week when I chat with her, but you can already get this sweet discount she's offering only to Girl Boner listeners. You can get 30% off by visiting greatlifegreatsex.com backslash girlboner. I hope you check it out. For more from Dr. Megan, check out the rest of her website and follow her on Twitter at Megan Fleming PhD. For show extras, my blog, and a whole lot more, visit my website, augustmclaughlin.com. To learn all sorts of ways you can better embrace your gorgeous sexuality, read my new book, Embraceable, Empowering Facts and True Stories About Women's Sexuality, available on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Thank you so much for listening, all, and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.